by way of introduction, I want to say that I decided to uh, try to weave together a sermon in the morning and a sermon on the evening so that there's something of a whole. Uh, the sermon this morning was about seeking the Lord with my whole heart, but there's this element of David being in the wilderness. And First Peter is a letter written to a church that was suffering persecution. So the idea or the, the reality of suffering is something that I'm wanting to come to terms with. I'm wanting to hear what God says about that. I'm going to be reading from chapter one. I'm going to start at the first of the chapter because I want you to hear what leads up to his words about suffering. They're very significant. They talk about who we are in Jesus Christ. With that in mind, my, uh, please listen as I read First Peter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 7. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Now the text, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter begins this letter with glorious words about our inheritance in Jesus Christ. There is a powerful Trinitarian statement in what appears to be just an opening greeting. He talks about our election by the Father, the, uh, the movement of the Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that triune God is acting on our behalf. He goes on to then to describe the inheritance that we have, an inheritance that cannot be stolen away, that is indestructible. And no one can take that away. And that leads him then to turn to discuss the reality of suffering. This really is the, the, the thrust of this whole letter is, is he's wanting to give guidance and comfort to believers who were suffering. I recently chose to preach to this book just because of the growing opposition that our culture has against the, against the Christian church. And by the fact that, uh, that we are experiencing this already and uh, many are, are anticipating that it might increase. And so we want to know 
who we are in Christ, and we, not, we, we want to know, in a sense, a theology of suffering. And that may, that may surprise you. A theology of suffering? And to put suffering in one hand and the electing love of a God who is all-powerful in the other hand? And some people will say, well, you just can't bring those two things together. How is it that a God who is all-powerful and who loves you would let you suffer? And they would say that that that's just incompatible. You can't put those two things together. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus says. From our perspective, we can come to think that being a child of God means that you will never suffer, that you will have everything that you want. Everything will turn out just right, and you'll have everything you want. But Jesus himself suffered. Son of God suffered. And he taught those who follow him that they would suffer as well. I want you to remember that Peter was one of the disciples and one of those three who were closest to him. And he walked with Jesus and he listened to him. And uh, as I've preached through First Peter there, I, I keep remembering what Jesus said and now see it uh, applied by Peter in the life of the believers uh, in the life of the Christians that he was ministering to. And this is the same case of this very first passage. I can't help but hear those words of Jesus Christ and I'll come back to them later. Here Peter says in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials. So tonight we're going to consider the reality and nature of suffering in the Christian life. And mostly, and most importantly, to see how Jesus purifies you through it. Leading to a very interesting conclusion that in this you greatly rejoice. There's a theology of suffering. So I'm going to walk through these two verses and I'm going to say uh, say seven things about uh, about suffering and I know when a pastor says seven things to the people who kind of groan oh wow this is going to be a really long sermon but I, I don't intend for that the first one is going to be longer because it's going to set the stage for all of it uh, but then the others are going to going to follow a little more briefly I'm going to attach to each of them I'm going to connect it to Peter's words in this you rejoice First of all, suffering is normal. If you uh, are going like this and you say, I, did, I hear right, did I hear you right? No, I'll say it again. Suffering is normal. Peter says in this you greatly rejoice, so for a little while, if need be. I want you to meditate a little bit on that phrase, if need be. It anticipates, he's going to say in the next verse, he talks about some of the purposes of suffering that God intends for us, but it also implies that you shouldn't be surprised by suffering in this life. One commentator calls it the the logical result of conversion. He compares it to the wake that follows after a a ship as it goes through the ocean. Uh, uh, 
I'm a Midwest boy, so I haven't been out on the ocean uh, very much. Uh, not, not much even on the lakes, but, but I, I think you know what, what he's talking about. When a ship is going through the ocean, it is pushing through the water, and all of its mass is pushing against that. And behind that, there is a wake, a wave that spreads out like this behind the ship. And you can tell that there's been a ship there because there's a wake. And it has to be there because that's just the physics of it. <laughs> the, the weight of the ship has to push the water somewhere. And as it's moving, that's the, that's the result of it. The logical conclusion of a ship moving through water. And the fact that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, has certain logical conclusions that follow after it. The, if need be, anticipates and, and rests on that logical conclusion that you are now a follower after Jesus Christ. Suffering is that logical conclusion, and we can say that because when you become a child of God, you leave behind the past loves. You leave behind the, 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 the past practices and habits. Being born again changes everything. There's a book by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, a very moving testimony of a, a woman well-versed and entrenched in liberal lesbian theology and life. God converted her. A powerful testimony of, of God's grace. But in it, she describes her conversion as a train wreck. Uh, so here's this, the logical conclusion. The, the train wreck is this. So oftentimes we think of, of, of conversion as kind of sprucing up that train as it moves down the track 100 miles an hour. Going and uh, nothing's really changed, but maybe you paint the outside and hang new curtains and things. And she said, no, no, that's not what conversion is. It's a train wreck because God is not content with you the way you are. It's like he wrecks the train, he renovates it completely, then he puts it back on the track and sends it down in the opposite direction that it was going, now 100 miles an hour. That's conversion. Conversion is this complete and radical change that God brings in your life. It means a complete renovation of your life. And that alone would bring about suffering. But then realize that when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior... He leads you to renounce all of those things that have been left behind. The way I just described it might be taken as kind of passive, that God has changed you and, and set you in a new direction. But there's something decidedly different about you now in that you renounce the false gods that you once served. Paul puts it this way, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You renounce those things of your past life. You renounce those false gods you once served. In Peter's day, that meant that they forsook the false gods, the the literal statues and idols that were prayed to, the temple of Diana and other idols of Greece and Rome. And they rejected the deity of the emperor of Rome, which was treasonous. They renounced it. If need be, for a little while, you will suffer. Those following Christ deny all other gods, which puts you at odds with the world around you. Make no mistake. So don't be surprised at the clash of worldviews and, and the, uh, the difficulties that inflame our world today. For we renounce the false gods of the independent, autonomous self. We renounce the doctrines of self-expression and of sexual identity. We renounce unbridled and undefined freedom of lifestyle that redefines marriage. We renounce the idolatry of serving our own wealth and comfort and the idolatry of looking to the government to define and control everything, and on and on and on. As these worldviews rise in the practice and in the mindsets of the culture around us, do not be surprised if your allegiance to Christ and God's word sets you apart from the world. Do not be surprised at the clash taking place It is the logical result of conversion. Jesus did warn of this, didn't he? He said if the world persecuted him, it will persecute his followers as well. Now note that Jesus and Peter are not teaching you to seek out persecution. You don't have a martyr complex or a martyr mission. But allegiance to Christ will set you apart as different from the world. Peter will say this all throughout this letter, but I'll call your attention to chapter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. In this you rejoice. Okay. So, let's get real about this. In this you rejoice in suffering. Understanding that it is normal because of your allegiance to Jesus. What you're going through is not something strange. It is not something unheard of. We have enjoyed quite a a history of, of peace in our country with very little suffering or persecution to say a little bit later about a people that I learned from a, a theology of suffering and they rejoice that they are serving Jesus 
come what may, they know that, that that is the most important thing. So rejoice in your suffering. That was the first, so now I'll go to the, the next that will go a little quicker here. Second, suffering is brief. It is described here as a little while. Now, when you're young and you're waiting for something, it, it may seem like it will never get there. Uh, if any of you are waiting for a birthday that seems just around the corner, it's like, is it my birthday yet? And you wake up and it's not yet. Why isn't he here yet? <laughs> it's, it's forever. We'll never get here. Well, let me assure you, it's not forever. <laughs> uh, forever is a really long time. But let me say to the adults that uh, there are other things that seem like forever. And suffering is one of those. The griefs that you bear may appear to have no end. The struggle that you are in today might seem like it uh, has gone on forever. You might think that it will never end. Dear brothers and sisters, it will. It will come to an end. It will come to an end in, in the love and mercy of Jesus Christ if not in this life, then in the life to come. This life is not the end. It is but a brief period compared to eternity. Meditate just a little bit on what eternity means. No beginning, no end. It's mind-blowing. The suffering that you're going through right now is only a little while compared to eternity. Peter does have eternity in view here because he speaks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So what it means when he talks about the revelation of the Lord. Part of his theology of suffering is has an eschatological end to it. Eschatological meaning the end of all things. And you, you need to know that Jesus has promised to come back and to set all things right and to bring to end every enemy, even the last enemy, death. He will accomplish that. There will be a day when the trumpet sounds and the unearthly shout from heaven will echo around the world and the dead will be raised and all will appear before Jesus Christ. And you and every believer to come and every believer before will be united to him forever. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more dying or disease. And that will be your condition forever. Suffering is brief. I'm not trying to belittle your suffering at all by saying that, but to lift your eyes beyond it to see our Savior Jesus Christ and to lead you to do as Peter says, in this you rejoice. Well, if your suffering is brief, that is good reason to rejoice. <laughs> and may it be that it gives you hope to persevere, to stand fast 
in the midst of that suffering, that it might breed hope into the despair that might be part of the suffering that you are encountering today. Third, suffering is varied. Peter says that you've been grieved by various trials. And I think this is helpful for us to remember that, uh, that there are a variety of ways that the people of God suffer in this life. Peter was writing to a specific people who were scattered by persecution. So just take a moment to imagine what they were going through. When they converted and said that they were going to follow after Christ, remember I described it as renouncing the idols of their day, even a treasonous act. For some of them, that meant that they were going to be hunted, just like David was being hunted, only this time they were being gathered up and taken to Rome, maybe to be thrown to the lions or to the gladiators. Some were being burned alive. They were persecuted for their faith. Many others had to leave their families, leave their vocation, flee with just what was on their backs. And that may help you to understand one type of suffering that believers were going through in Peter's day. And that, that's happening today in certain regions of the world. Your life is, in a sense, forfeit if they know that you are a Christian. As we talk about the, the persecution that happens around the world, there is a little bit of a tendency to almost elevate that as if, uh, as if that is the only type of suffering there is. But Peter acknowledges that there are a variety of ways in which we suffer. And he doesn't give a catalog, and it's, the catalog could probably go on for pages and pages because there are just a variety of ways. Not only is there persecution because of the opposition of the evil one, but there is just the fact that we live in a fallen world. And there are consequences because of that, the consequences of disease and death. There are consequences because while we are redeemed in Christ, we still sin. And that hurts us when we're sinned against, and it hurts others when we sin against, it, against them. There's a variety of suffering that takes place. And in this, we rejoice. And in the variety of suffering, the area of rejoicing that I would set before you is that, uh, that Jesus knows. Jesus knows the, the variety, the texture, the pain, the sorrow, the opposition, whatever that suffering is, Jesus, and he knows it because he has gone before us. He too has suffered more than anything that you will ever suffer. When Jesus suffered, he suffered for sin, the sinless for the sinner. And when he suffered, he suffered outpouring of the just judgment of God, his wrath and curse against sin. And he suffered it fully. It was hard. Hard, that, uh, hard enough to make him weep as he prayed to the Father 
let this cup pass from me. Jesus knows, and in this we can rejoice. Fourth, suffering is grievous. The fact that you are a Christian doesn't mean that you will never grieve. You are grieved by various trials. Peter doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to erect some theology that explains away suffering as if, well, this came upon you because you didn't have enough faith. The uh, word and faith, health, wealth, gospels are devastating in this area because they deny grief and place the burden of that grief fully back on you. They leave it there. Christians do grieve. We are not Stoics. By that I mean um, the idea that we, we just grit our teeth and we're going to get through this. There are things that are wrong in the world. There are things that are evil. There are things that are an enemy. It is right to weep over, over sin. It's right to weep over death. If Jesus did, then surely we can as well, can't we? These things are grievous. And it may seem that that what I've just said, that, that suffering is grievous, clashes with what I'm going to say next. This is a reason to rejoice. I'm not saying that you have to wipe away your tears and paint a smile on your face and go about... Uh, saying, count it all joy, count it all joy. Well, it's right to grieve, but grieving has a different character to it. Once again, we know that Jesus knows your grief, and in this case, I'm not talking about the variety, but the very actual aspect, uh, the very uh, presence of your grief. And the Holy Spirit has been given to, to lead you to, to groan out to God, to cry out to Him. He leads you to express your sorrow and your desperation to Him. I'll give another plug for the Psalms. Modern hymnody doesn't have a theology of suffering. They don't have anything to sing. But God has given us, <laughs> given us a whole book to sing that expresses many times grief and sorrow and pain and suffering. And Jesus knows that. And so here, I would say rejoicing doesn't look like happiness. But it, it looks like in the Redeemer's hands. Fifth, suffering is purposeful. And here, Peter moves into three statements about the purpose of our suffering. Suffering is purposeful because it proves that your faith is genuine. Verse 7, But the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found 
to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. Here I'm calling attention to that word genuineness, the genuineness of your faith, and then the testing of your faith that comes after that. So what Peter's doing here is he's using a, 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 a metaphor or an example from the ancient world that has to do with, uh, with the testing of gold, a very precious metal. And being precious, there were those that would, uh, uh, would try to cheat you by giving you something that either was not gold or was somehow mixed with other things. I've heard that there are tourist shops here in Colorado that do the same thing. <laughs> Afflicting visitors with fool's gold. <laughs> well, in ancient worlds, one way that you could test is to put it in fire. And there's, uh, there's a different reaction to what is happening with, with what is pure and what is false, what is true and what is real. In a moment, I'm going to say it also purifies, but let's think about the genuineness that happens, that uh, proves, is proved in suffering. In the fire, gold remains. What is false is burnt off or unveiled. Under suffering, faith remains. It isn't burned away. Think of what we providentially read earlier in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the seeds. Three different types of seeds that, uh, that, uh, that have no effect. Where they, they spring up and are withered by the sun. They spring up and are choked by the cares of this world, or the, the thorns. And Jesus is uh, telling us what that means. That for some, the seed does not bear genuine faith. But for some, the seed that falls in the good soil, it does indeed produce a good fruit. And there's that, that, that sense of testing. There's that sense of Proving the genuineness of faith. So I've walked beside brothers and sisters in the midst of their suffering. I remember a godly friend being with her in the room as her mother passed away. And the tears that were streaming down her face, but the words that she said were, the Lord gives the Lord take, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In her grief, her faith, there are others that something bad like this happens and they walk away. They renounce their faith. They say, this can't, I, I can't live with such a God. Suffering proves her faith. And this is a reason to rejoice. Like the way Psalm 116 puts it. I still believed, although I said how sorely I am tried. I still believed, though I was sorely chastened. You can rejoice that though you suffer, that you are also counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Sick suffering is purposeful as it refined your faith. And this has been, uh, I've alluded to this fact already, the idea of the fire that, put the metal into, uh, you put the gold into, and the, 
the heat of the flames will purify this. We don't see that very much these days, but maybe you've uh, seen pictures or videos of the making of steel. I had an uncle that worked in the steel mills in Ohio. The huge Bessemer furnaces that would take the different uh, the different metals that were the composite parts that make up steel, and to get it there, it is heated to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And part of that is so that it would combine, and part of it is to burn off anything that is impure. And they pour this out, and there's this this rain of fire and almost uh, molten lava. It's a, uh, watch a video about this. It's, a, it's breathtaking to see. And the analogy points to the way that God uses trials to purify your faith. As you think about that, consider what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. I was really moved by, uh, by just the title. I haven't read the book. Um, John Piper was was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And he, he wrote a book that said, don't waste your cancer. Suffering does have a purpose. It may be to humble you so that you depend more fully on God rather than on your own strength. Suffering has a way of, of taking you to the end of yourself. There is something about that that speaks to kind of a, that tendency we all have to self-reliance or maybe even self-righteousness. And I want you to hear this carefully. God loves you enough to not leave you in that. He loves you enough to not leave you in your sins. And all through your life, he is preparing you for heaven. In this we rejoice, don't we? That God will not leave off the work of his hands. The trial that you are going through is fiery, is painful, is, is grievous. Remember that point earlier. And I'm not minimizing that. But see the purpose of a loving God in the midst of it. In this you can rejoice. God is at work purifying you. Don't shrink away from it. And finally, suffering is purposeful as it glorifies God. Having spoken of the verse 1 and, and this glorious triune speaking of God's claiming you and redeeming you and cleansing you, the inheritance that no one can ever steal away. Even in the midst of this suffering, Peter is moved to a doxology, to, uh, uh, to these words of praise. Though your, your faith is tested by fire, it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this phrase could be taken in two different ways that uh, Paul could be saying that uh, that God's approval of you, that is saying, well done, good and faithful servant, is, is 
something that we all look forward to. We are, you are a child of God now. You are now justified, but you are not yet what you will be. And when Christ comes again, you will see him face to face. And there will be the defeat of that last great enemy. And you'll hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that I have prepared for you. Or it could be that Peter is also uh, could be referring to how your persevering brings praise, honor, and glory to God. So the first kind of harkens back to what he had been speaking of about this glorious inheritance. This is more in line with what Peter's going to say next. That the way you conduct yourself in the midst of suffering leaves a wake. It leaves a witness. The way that your faith is proved as the way your faith is, is demonstrated in the midst of suffering stands as a beacon of light to the world that opposes you. And though they deny it, though they reject it, though they hate you for it, it still stands as a witness. And so in chapter 2, Peter's going to say, live such good lives among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So that they may be found, here back in chapter 1, to the praise, honor, and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, in this, we greatly rejoice. Your life is a living testimony to the power of God to save. Your life is a living testimony to others that they too might know this same blessing. And may it be that for some that they are without excuse, but may it be that some will one day say, I saw Jesus Christ in the sufferings of my and I came to know him by watching their testimony of their faith in Jesus. I pray that you would never tire of remembering your salvation. You would never tire of remembering your Savior. And I hope that you'll see how this message and Psalm 63 fit well together and will help produce in you a theology of suffering. Let me rephrase that. I want more than a theology. I want, I want you to know your Savior. I want you to know that he loves you. And I want you to know that in the midst of the suffering that you're going through, so that the love of Christ will sustain you, so that you stand fast in the midst of it. To God be the glory. Lord God, we do confess that these things are very difficult for us to understand. Suffering tends to cause our horizon to shrink so that all that we can see is the trouble that we face or the pain that we are going through. But Lord, your word does bring light to us. The promises of redemption are ones that, that, uh, that lift our eyes 
past that horizon to see that far distance and yet so near reality that Jesus is our Savior. And though it is needful that we may suffer in this life, we pray that in it we might find those elements in which we rejoice. I pray specifically tonight for this congregation for not just the personal ways that they uh, they invariably are or will go through suffering. But I just think of the corporate ways that they have endured a variety of trials over these last several years. Lord God, I pray that you would, uh, would lift their eyes and their faith to you so that they would see that you are working glorious things amongst them. May it give them hope as they search for a pastor and seek out one to shepherd your flock. I pray that in the midst of suffering that they would come around each other and that they might encourage each other. They might guard against those things that creep in to divide and to, to, to speak against one another. Instead, O oh Lord, I pray that they would find comfort in the gospel, that they would comfort one another with the gospel, and that in these things they might greatly rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.